talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here in the space between the turns of your favorite games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we will be covering Emotep by Bill Walker Harding, PWH, oh, uh, Decision Space favorite, and I think this is actually the first of his games that we're giving the full Decision Space treatment to. So needless to say, a very exciting episode. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jake. I'm excited to cover a Phil Walker Harding game. I feel like we did, you and Paul did talk about Summer Camp, but not in a deep dive episode. Right. And I think people will be surprised maybe that we're tackling Imhotep as our first deep dive of Phil Walker Harding. Um, but just because I, even though it was a run up for Spilly Yars, maybe not the most talked about game. So I'm curious to see if we sort of get into why that might be, but also why it's a dope game that people should talk about. Yeah, and if you are interested in Phil Walker Harding as a designer, uh, definitely go back and check out that episode because I think he's definitely a really interesting guy with some pretty compelling like through threads through a lot of his designs, which maybe we'll touch on here, but we uh, did a, a lot more back in that episode. Uh, so I think definitely an interesting designer that perhaps uh, doesn't get recognized in the same breath as some other designers, uh, but really, I think one of the preeminent people designing games in our hobby right now. And we might be slightly bearing the lead because people might not know who Phil Walker Harding is, but you definitely know some of his games like Sushi Go or Baron Park, or maybe even some of his newer ones like his Roll and Write Silver and Gold or his older ones like his card game Archaeology. Absolutely. Um, for our pre-planners out there, I do want to let you know that next week we'll be covering... Uh, another of our decision space favorite designers uh, in uh, Bruno Cathala's game, King Domino. Bruno Cathala Strikes Back. I'm so excited. This is a little game with a huge decision space that's also available on Board Game Arena. Uh, it plays, uh, I would say play it if you're curious at following along once with like three or four players and once with seven, two players in the seven by seven Mighty Duel variant. And you'll be good to go for next week's episode. Yeah, definitely one you can very quickly knock out some games of and get up to speed uh, and you won't regret it. Uh, spoiler alert. So... Let's get right into this week's episode, a discussion of Emotep, starting out as we always do with our ratings and slogans for the game. Brendan, will you please give us your rating and slogan first? Um, Emotep is a bit like building a birdhouse alongside a few friends, all equipped with the same exact base materials and tools. Ostensibly, if given an hour, if equally skilled at birdhouse building, then all of your birdhouses should come out exactly the same. After all, you would act access to the exact same set of tools, the exact same pieces to put together, and yet Jake over here somehow built the Cadillac of avian boats, and Joe's got a multi-story hawk hotel, and somehow I'm just hoping the roof keeps the rain out of my stupid birdhouse. That's Emotep. Emotep is a great game, quite good actually, uh, but it's feigned variety gestures at its one real issue, that every game of Emotep can start to feel a bit too similar. Ultimately, it's a game I'd always be happy to play, but might not suggest or seek out to own myself 7.75 solid stones out of 10. That's an amazing synopsis. I'm picturing your uh, birdhouse and that metaphor is kind of like the, uh, let's see, the, the gingerbread house of birdhouses yeah. with like, you know, like they're always kind of about to fall over uh, the gingerbread house on every cooking competition show I've ever seen. That's like in last place. It's like, 
slowly caving in on like the sad uh, the, camera shot the icing's falling off a little bit like it wasn't mixed right yeah exactly wow okay all right so for me i'm gonna do my classic thing of the much shorter uh punchier synopsis to me imhotep is like mashed potatoes and gravy it doesn't look like much but it's really flavorful and like you're probably never turning it down if if, if presented it uh i think it's a great game uh I am going to give this one a 9 out of 10. Whoa. I really liked it. Uh, I actually, I'm going to give it a 9.2 out of Whoa. 10. Whoa. <laughs> in the water. Oh my gosh. I don't know why exactly. Maybe I'll change that over the course of the uh, review, but that was the number that just came to me in my head, in my gut, 9.2. I loved it. Um, but you, your review... I, I hear what you're saying. I agree. It actually made me go down to nine, but I'm sticking with 9.2 at least at the start of this uh, before we get into the episode. Uh, so a little bit of background about Emotep, uh, as we mentioned, designed by Phil Walker Harding, published in 2016, uh, two to four player game. Uh, it is a two player game. You know, it can be played at two despite Emotep, the duel existing as an exclusively two player game, plays a little different. Uh, and this was one of the, the Spiel de Jarl nominees in 2016. So it was a game that got a lot of buzz then and maybe has faded off a little bit since. But uh, Brendan, do you want to give us uh, the blurbs from the committee at this time? Yeah, so we always like to do this when we have a Spiliars winner or a nominee. So this is what the Spiliars jury had to say about Emotep uh, in 2016. Caution, construction site. <laughs> like, what? Okay, when players... That's that's actually the blurb. I didn't just add that. When players work together and compete at the same time to build ancient Egyptian monuments out of chunky wooden cubes, it's a real spectacle. Obelisks, pyramids, the burial chamber, and the temple grow as three-dimensional, eye-catching sculptures. No one's ever loved cubes so much. The refined tactical mechanics with constant tricky decisions, really interesting, uh, alongside the thematically appropriate components come together from out of the desert sands to form a well-rounded and exciting family game. That's Jake, thoughts? Beautiful. It is I, I beautiful. Like, I, I mean, it's so nice. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think it's funny... There is like such a fixation on components in board games um, in our hobby, especially amongst like the people who are deepest, like the biggest hobby gamers, right? Have this fixation. So it's just funny to see uh, the the Spieljar committee kind of using that same kind of terminology. Like you know, when you hear somebody describe a board game component as chunky, that's like the pinnacle of praise. Totally. like chunky dice chunky cubes uh chunky poker chips like that is what we want it's funny because we always go to food metaphors to describe games but like chunky and food metaphors not generally good a vibe also very intrigued by the tricky decisions being highlighted here and i think we'll delve a little bit deeper into that as we continue the discussion just because i also the game that emotep lost to was codenames 
Uh, I don't know that we'll ever cover codenames on the show. So I feel like I should take this opportunity to read that jury statement really quickly. Codenames, of course, such a celebrated game that's really, I think, become the standout of hobby industry for games in the last 10 years. So just quickly, for posterity, here's the codename statement. One game of codenames is often followed by a second, then a third, then a fourth. This association game is so spellbinding that it's hard to break away from it. To describe as many words as possible using just one term without giving anything away to the opposition is like a puzzle you just have to solve, as opposed to puzzles you don't have to, which I guess exists. Good variants for two or three players make this team game a fully rounded experience. If you like juggling with language, you'll love codenames. So interesting to sort of see the juxtaposition there. Definitely. Well, let's get right into your game synopsis and rules over review recorded previously by Brendan. Thanks so much for doing that. Interdecisional spaceship. Please play the Emotep rules overview. Beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop. Emotep is a tactical logistics nightmare. I mean, I mean puzzle. In the game, players are assigned a color of stone gray, white, brown, etc., and given a set of cubes that will be their primary means to interact with the game. Imhotep plays out over the course of six rounds. In each round, four shared boats are randomly selected, which players will add their stones to one by one into any of the open spots on the boat, and then later use the boats to transport those stones, likely owned by a mixture of players, to one of five build sites available. Each build site, the market, the pyramids, the obelisk, the burial chamber, etc., are different mini-games that offer the player different ways of earning immediate points, end-game scoring conditions, cards that give alternative scoring conditions, or single-use effects. Each turn, the player is offered a simple choice. They may 1. Collect 3 more stones from their supply and add them to their hand, never to exceed 5. Add a stone to one of the empty locations on a boat, or three, send a boat off to a site. Boats are shared and efficiently timing one's turns is key to playing Emotep well. As players add stones to one of the four available boats in a round, their final intended destination of those stones might be different than their opponents who've also added stones to the boat might be. Knowing when to sacrifice stone placement tempo to restore your supply or direct a boat to the exact site you'd like it to go to is important, but so is knowing when you can afford to allow others to spend their valuable actions on sending boats and instead arrange your stones cleverly so you can sit back and reap the rewards of their hard work. At the end of the six rounds, the player with the most points in Emotep is declared the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for that rules overview. Uh, hopefully that gives people a better idea of how to play Emotep. Let's get right into the decision space of this game. And, you know, there's really not a lot going on beyond this one very specific decision space of what to do about your rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Emotep is interesting in that you really... There's three core actions in the game. You take stones, you place a stone, or you can send a boat if a boat's full. And the those different decisions all sort of come textured with more complex decisions, right? Except for the take stones. 
And then it's all a timing puzzle. Everything in the game is a timing puzzle. Is this the right time to do this? Can I afford to do this now? Or should I wait later? Um, taking stones, you just take stones. If you're going to make the decision to place into a boat, then you have the decision of, okay, which of these four boats do I place into? Which slot do I want to place into? Um, and then if you're going to send a boat, of course, is now the right time to send a boat? The boat's not full. Should I send it anyway? And I think one thing that makes Emotep such a good game for how puzzly the end game scoring is for me is every decision you're making, you're thinking about what other players want as much as what you want. Absolutely. I think that is the key of this game, which is because the whole game is about tempo, that necessarily means that player interaction is fundamental to every single decision that you make in the game. Uh, And that's something that I think it reminds me of like Azul in that way, right? It's like, I think these games are pretty similar in their weight and decision space. And and in that they're both like these great super puzzly family games uh, where no matter what you're doing, it's impacting other people uh, in their ability to score points in their ability to take a tempo break, to take stones, uh, in the player order as we get into the next round. Uh, Everything is so fundamentally tied together. And I think that's just something I really admire about a game of this weight, which could otherwise be too calculable, right? Yep. And I think that is sort of the tension in, in in a design like this, or like Azul, or, you know, any of these other games uh, that I think fall into this similar kind of family game, puzzle game category. One thing that's so interesting too about the puzzle of Imhotep is the game in a lot of ways becomes, how can I get Jake to build my birdhouse? And in most of our games, it turns out I cannot get Jake to build my birdhouse. But to play Imhotep really well is to figure out how you can get everyone else at the table to do your work sending boats for you. And to like set your stones just right such that it doesn't, that you could just not even, for the most part, take those actions and still be benefiting and take those actions only when it's really the right time. I think we'd be remiss too, Jake, not to talk about the type of decision space here, because I think out of all the games we've covered, this might be the closest we've come to a static decision space. It's not a totally static game. There's elements that shift. The card market is variable. Um, Some of the conditions of the scoring at different spots feel a little bit dynamic in terms of the value of them. But in terms of the decisions that you're making, definitely, I would say, I can't think of a game that's more static than Emotep that we've played. Yeah, I agree. I think the shape of this decision space is, to to reference a previous episode in in a game we covered, is very similar to actually Jaipur in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, Both games, I think, by and large, your decision space from turn one to the last turn of the game stays very much the same, though, like, that's like the practical, that's the experience of it, though, if you're looking at like just the literal fact of how many choices and decisions you have, it is waning, you know, in general, because there are fewer spots available on boats or there are fewer boats left to send out, or there are fewer spaces to where you could send a boat because if, you know, another one is already there. So over the course of any given round, it does wane. Um, and, and then, you know, it'll open back up as you go into the next of the six rounds. You know, everything gets cleared off of the boats and the boats are reset. But I agree with you that, like, in practice, when you're playing this game, 
it feels static. Another aspect that's interesting about the decision space is the clarity of it. So you've sort of said that if there wasn't your opposing players, the uncertainty tied to them, everything would be pretty calculable. So it's like a fully clear decision space, right? Your optimal move on any given turn is totally apparent what you should be going for. And I feel like the two things that help Emotep in making it fuzzier is your opponent's yes, but also the bite-sized nature of your actions. In a lot of games, I feel like like a lesser version of Emotep would be like, do three things on your turn. Because you could, and some of the power cards sort of allow this, but even those are like, do two things and feel like it's really special. And it is because it's a tempo skip. Well, really you like spent a turn of tempo getting the cards. So you like banked the tempo in the card and then you play the card and then you take two turns in one, which I think is a really interesting design decision. But with that said, I think the bite-sized nature of the turns of Emotep also help with the fuzziness because it's hard to get a sense for what the game state is going to look like in a, a way that if players took the same amount of actions overall with their cubes in a given game, but they happened in chunks of three, you would have a way clearer decision space because you would know what was gonna, how things were going to play out when you made your decisions on average slightly more, which is a really interesting thought experiment. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing to think about. I was thinking about that too, just like what points of fuzziness are there in this game? And obviously what your opponents are going to do is is not, you know, you can you can make educated guesses about it, but you don't know for sure. Other than that, there are a few ways that the game does add uncertainty, um, but they're so small. So at the space that you can go get cards, you could choose to take a face down card instead of one of the three remaining. So that's like a piece of hidden information that could come into the game. Uh, at, at when and then when rounds are reset, you'll get new cards available to take, and also the boats that are available to display aren't always the same. Uh, so some so you know you may try and strategically set up a turn sequence so that you can go first in the next turn to take a boat that's just has space for one cube, and then there aren't any. So there are like there are things that aren't perfectly knowable uh, that would, I guess, stop you from going full chess on it and thinking like 25 turns ahead, um, which is good, too, I think. Is now a good time to talk about the boat system a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Because I feel like the boat system, when I first was reading about Imhotep, the boat system in general feels like this really important glue to the game. Um, and I, it's interesting because it's such a simple game and the scoring conditions of a lot of the different spots feel super clever to me. Like the burial chamber, chamber and the way you're set collecting and how that emphasizes how your stones going in matter, but also just the boat system of, so there's eight total boats in the game, two with four spots, three with three spots, two with two spots, and one with one spot. I did a little math. Those average out to like 2.375 spots per boat. Um, but I just think it's really interesting how this system adds enough texture that the game doesn't feel too samey in any given one game when you're playing it to me. Um, and it adds so much the the mind games that are added by okay, I'd really love to load up this bigger boat with as many of my cubes as possible because if I'm going to be the one who's forced to send it eventually, it's going to make that action more efficient. But at the same time, because only one boat can go to a location in a turn, 
spending a lot of effort to just sneak one cube on that one little boat in the dead of night onto a spot, blocking the spot and getting one cube in can be really tense and dramatic in a way that's awesome. Um, so to me, the boat system is just like so cool. Yeah, it, and it really, you know, there's so much to think about there, right? In terms of like, sometimes, you know, it's hard to it's hard to like speak in general terms about this game because each decision is going to be predicated on the scoring that is available in that game. So each of the locations has a side A and side B. You know, you're going to play with different combinations in every game. Uh, but for example, you might have a, a turn where it's you want to go have the second stone placed in the burial chamber really bad. So your strategy could just be to like instead of loading up on one boat, just trying to take the second slot in every boat or as many boats as you can to maximize the chance that, you know, you'll be able to go into that spot or to thorough, because that spot is so important for you, it's thoroughly disincentivizing your opponents from sending a different, so to, from sending one of those boats, that spot. So, you know, they're, that it'll at least like at worst remain open for you to then try again and take in a second round. Um, but yeah, I think like the more you kind of dive into each of these systems, even though it on its surface seems so calculable, like they're just so interconnected um, that you really can like go deep in thinking about them, you know, like on your turn, even though the decision space feels small, uh, it, it's like small, but deep. If that makes sense. I, I think that's the nature of a lot of static decision space games that are interesting. We've talked about sort of in uh, in the context of what type of other games are static decision spaces. And so many of these games work because they're about playing in the mind of your opponents. So like fighting games also tend to be about static decision spaces. You have a few choices that don't really change over the course of the game, but because it's about predicting or in the case of Emotep, mitigating, predicting what your opponents are doing and trying to mitigate the consequences of predicting wrong, the decision space on one hand feels pretty small, but on another hand sort of almost feels infinite because there's so many potential decisions that your opponents could make. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that sort of binary between like static decision spaces tend to be small because the actual choices that you have are relatively limited. But generally, the ways in which they're structured make them feel like these deep, deep pools. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like kind it's just so impressive to me that this design works at all (laughs) because it because of how, you know, like I think when you're talking about the types of decision spaces and, and, you know, our terminology for describing them, it seems like fuzzy, like the fuzzier a decision space is. Mm-hmm. almost like the less work the designer has to do because like if a game is like sufficiently fuzzy to where players can't figure it out in their first few plays like that game could be totally broken mm-hmm. but if people aren't able to like understand like why they would do this thing they might just not figure it out and be able to enjoy the game which is fine like that's not even wrong but if a game is like really really on the clear side of things and any aspect of it isn't perfectly tuned. It's just going to be, you know, uh, either like a solved game, which as we, you know, like to think about, isn't even a game at all, right? Yeah. No viable decisions because 
there's only one viable decision on your turn, right? So you're actually not able to make any choices. And this game feels like it's just like the decision feels like it's approaching that. Like you can almost figure it out <laughs> on any given turn without ever actually, you know, being able to do it perfectly or, you know, at the point that you are able to like perfectly deduce your most optimal play. If you're playing against an equally skilled opponent who then knows, like, I know that you know this and therefore I'll change what the, I want to do. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of flip the script on, on what I'm trying to do. Now, all of a sudden I'm sending boats earlier when they're not full. Um, like it does have, I think, a space to, to play that's going to continue to be fun even as, as you get to uh, mastery of this game. Which I guess is part of part of the joy, and why when maybe my criticism of the game as being not feeling too samey is not correct, because every given table environment is going to be different. And I think your statement about trying to find the perfect play is so uh, salient here, because so many of the games that we cover in a given game, there probably is a perfect play on a specific turn. But the what makes Emotep so cool is there is no perfect play. Like that's the point of these static decision spaces, right? Is that the perfect play could be the, could end up being the absolute wrong play. If your opponent in the next turn makes the decision at odds with that one. And that's just like, they just turn themselves up like wind up dolls and then run forever. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, but I do think to your point, like it, it, the static decision space is the right way to describe this game because of, And it's because of, I think, the clarity that helps make it feel that way. You know, you could easily see, you know, we've used this example before, but like if you're playing chess on a popular uh, chess app and you can review your your games and it will tell you like who's got the best percentage to win based on this board state. And then you can see how it changes as moves are made and whether they're like optimal or not. You could easily picture something like that existing for Emotep. And I don't think it would even be like that. I mean, I'm not a computer programmer. Obviously, it'd be incredibly challenging, but it seems like very possible that some system like that could easily exist for this game that would be able to like tell you, you know, the type, oh, like that wasn't an optimal move. Like you could have done this and that would have increased your chance of winning by 3% instead of like going down by 7%. Um, So it is that type of game. And I think that type of game is always going to feel samey to some extent, just like chess, just like go. Um, but as you, you know, the thing that isn't same is you and you're yep. experiencing, you're playing at a better level. So you're able to like continue to explore and grow in the system. And I really think, you know, Emotep, what has impressed me so much about it, why I give it such a high score is because. I feel like I'm like learning and growing in every mm. single play of this game. There's a lot of room for efficiency that's hidden, uh, I think, or not even efficiency, because you can't actually be super efficient in this game. Everyone, like I said in my my summary, everyone gets the same actions overall, even with the power cards. You still get the same amount of actions. It's not efficiency. It's like efficiency in terms of doing the right thing at the right time, even though overall your agency is still the same, which is really interesting. I would argue there is efficiency in this game. And I think, in my opinion, uh, you know, after, I don't know, eight plays or so, I'm not trying to say I'm an expert, so this could be way off base. Um, I think efficiency is how many times you send boats mm. over the course of the game. 
the more you are sending boats, like the less efficient your game is because those are actions that you're not placing stones on boats that give you points or taking stones, which give you the ability to then place them and get points. Sure. And, and at the, over the course of the, and there are definitely times of course, when the right action would be to send a boat because the value is so high to you of, you know, it, it could be the difference of like, okay, if this is goes to the obelisk, that's 10 points for me. If it goes to uh, the burial chamber, that's only going to be worth two points to me, you know, something like that. Uh, so yeah, it might be worth that hit in efficiency to send a boat there. But I do think just as like a level one, trying to position yourself in a way that people are doing your work for you and yeah. sending your boats to places that still get you points does to me feel like efficient play. Yeah, I think that's really fair. <laughs> There's also, that's the mechanism too that becomes so interesting because it's the mechanism for which uh, you can be a scoundrel. And I think that that's one of the greatest things about Emotep 2 is there's definitely those moments where you put in all this effort, you know, your precious actions, you move these chunky stones into oh, the boat. The you big chunky stones. <laughs> completely loaded up. You know where it's going. It's going to that burial chamber. It's classic Phil Walker Harding, triangular scoring. You're going to sink three chunky stones into the barrel chamber in the exact right spots. You've spent three whole turns waiting for it to happen. And then Jake over here kicks it over to the obelisk where you're five stones behind. So it does nothing for you. And you're just like, God, this game is infuriating. But it's infuriating in a good way. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's 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 infuriating. And in, in I think the, the best kind of way where it again, right, it, it's really playing on that player interaction. Yeah. And you can be so cutthroat and mean. And it's like also funny and it's not take that um yeah one but i think it still works for like families and even people that like like it's like gently nudging people into some like take that confrontational play that you know would hate it if it's send it if it was like you know a risk or a game where it's like i'm gonna come wipe you off of this territory that's your home and I think the brilliance of that too, the reason why that doesn't happen is because of the shared nature of the boats, right? It's not like you have a boat and I have a boat and like, take that, Jake, I just sent your boat over there. It's like my cubes are in it, your cubes are in it, Joe's cubes are in it, Paul's cubes are in it. So there's this intermingling in a way that softens the potential for take that in a way that it like really obfuscates like, am I just trying to screw you? Sometimes that's there, but a lot of the times what is hurting you is helping me and maybe neutral for someone else. So it kind of comes out in the wash and it doesn't feel personal. It's just business. We're just yeah. trying to be the best builder in Egypt. And we should also say probably the two player game is significantly more cutthroat than sure. it would be in a three or four player game as, as you would expect. Um, the, the Just the other point I wanted to make about the decision space in general is how bewildering i found this game when i first played it like in the first couple of plays i was just like what is going on like i could Mm. not like my brain could not connect different actions to like points um at all it it was i don't know why if that's just me being silly but like the the Mm. decision like the points and the decisions felt like so abstract it's like okay i guess i'll put this rock on this boat over here you know and it's a little bit difficult for my brain 
early on to kind of like track like why would this spot be better than this spot over here especially when you're playing with like three or four people uh you know it's like okay i could put that there but they could send it to like any of these spots like does it matter but over the course of play uh you just become so familiar with the different scoring options uh and and it becomes like really more like easier i think to like kind of focus in and hone in on the like what like why you would want to be in the second slot on any given boat based on like all the scoring things that are present uh or or why you'd want to be first or why you'd want to try and get as many onto a single boat or why you'd want to diversify um and i think those are things that are like while it ultimately we could say is like calculable it does feel fuzzy at first and i I don't know i've just really kind of appreciated the amount of growth i've experienced in in mastery of the game uh even from you know the amount i've played it not again not saying i'm a master of this game at all but yes i I feel like the I feel like the amount of like mastery I've been able to achieve over the course of a few plays is like enormous compared to like how much I feel like I'm able to improve at just an average game or even a game I really like over a few plays. Like I feel like I've gone from just like complete novice to like very skilled but still like able to like see the room to like go so much higher. Yeah, that's awesome. And those experiences in games are some of the best. When like you play them and you didn't realize how deep the game was and then all of a sudden it feels three times as big as you thought it was, that's like the best type of game. When we were playing with you and Joe early on, I think I was just like, I do not understand like what I'm doing at all in this game. Do you? Think Did you that feel that way for you? I, okay, so I'm really intrigued by so much of what you just said. <laughs> at, at first when you were talking, I was like, oh, Jake had his Feld monocle on. Which is what we talked about in the last episode, how sometimes you can get a little bit euroy in the way that you're looking at decision spaces and points, right? Where you're like, okay, how does this action convert directly? What is the point payout going to be? And I could see how Imhotep would stymie someone who had the monocle a little bit too close to their eye and trying to like figure out what the average value of a given action is because it is pretty fuzzy and how it's going to shake out. But then I was like, oh, is Jake describing the sensation, the same sensation that the Spill the Yars committee was talking about when they were talking about those tricky decisions? Um, And I feel like it might be some combination of those two things. And I'm really intrigued about that, like phrasing of tricky decisions, um, because like you're saying, all of the information is there. And I think in... But because of your opponent's actions, it's hard to ultimately calculate completely that you can do things that mitigate it, like slotting all of your stones into slot two, knowing that no matter if it goes to the obelisk or the barrel chamber or the pyramids, you'll at least get some payout that's helpful to you given the game state. But so we've come up with this framing in the past, like decisions are choices that are equally viable and push you towards winning a game. Choices are what they sound like, anything you can do in a game. So are like fuzzy decisions, something that we haven't considered yet in this like spectrum of choices and decisions where it's because of the nature of the game, you can't really know, right? You're going with some value judgment based on what you think your opponents are going to do, how you think the randomness in the game is going to play out. So in a lot of games we've played and covered on the show, there are decisions and there are choices. And Emotep, because of your opponent's actions, there's only fuzzy decisions and choices. 
It's so funny that we're now using that framework for a game. At the beginning, we were talking about like, oh, this decision space is like <laughs> almost perfectly clear. And now we're like, are there any decisions at all? Everything is so unknowable. And yeah. I, and I just feel like all I really can add to that is to say like, to me, that demonstrates like how perfectly um, mm. the designer has walked this line of making this puzzly really family weight game uh, into something that I think anyone can enjoy. And, 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 you know, it just shows to me, like, you know, we talk about like walking this line between making things clear and understandable and, but not perfectly knowable. And I just think like this conversation shows that like that line has been walked perfectly down the middle. I think one thing that's so interesting about Phil Walker Harding as a designer is Okay, so I'm going to juxtapose him with Reiner Knizia. Reiner Knizia, of course, one of the most impactful designers on the hobby. He's made all these incredible games. And I think their games are pretty similar in that they both like to distill things to their most base idea. But I think what's so interesting is that Phil Walker Harding does this and he he just tries to make it as clean as possible, whether it's Imhotep or Sushi Go. And the turn, the twist comes from your opponent's choices. It's really hard to evaluate what the right decision is in Imhotep. Uh, based on your opponent's actions. And it's same with Sushi Go because what what's going to be the best depends on what's the best for everyone else and what will make it back to you. Um, that's an early classic drafting game that most of you probably know. Whereas like Reiner Knizia is someone who really likes to distill games to their most base version. But I think his platonic ideal in a lot of his design aesthetic is like, what can I do to like twist the game space to be, to have this one confusing turn that adds complexity and in my mind, they both are like pursuing these same ideals of really simple distilled games, but then where they go to add that one little piece of texture that makes them so interesting is totally divergent and gives their games such different feels where both being sort of aesthetic, aesthetically ideal of the same school of like, I will refine and shave away this game to be something clean that anyone could play. Yeah. I haven't played that many PWH games, but... I do agree with what you're saying, and I feel as though perhaps games like Sushi Go, like this design uh, identity or ideal, uh, is something that really makes them perfect for like families, mm. uh, and as like you know gateway games, if you want to use that term, to to not necessarily to, like bring people into the hobby, but to enjoy with everybody. And I think Sushi Go. And Emotep, too, I have played, are just perfect examples of that. And this was also something, you know, Paul talked about on that other episode. So give him credit for kind of bringing this idea forward. He's the president of the PWH fan club, as many <laughs> know, um, which is that like in there's there's like a base point value associated with an action. In mm-hmm. uh, Emotep, right, putting a boat, a rock on a boat is getting you somewhere between one and three points, almost without exception. Um, So you could say like, you know, the average value of placing a rock on a boat is two. Uh, And the difference between skilled and novice players is going to be just like a slightly increasing the average value of placing a rock on a boat. Uh, just, you know, just getting a little bit more. So, if, you know, if you play perfectly throughout the game, maybe instead of averaging of two points, you're averaging 2.3 points or 2.4 points per rock place um, by, 
you know, leveraging like what your knowledge, what your opponents want to knowledge of the board and, and the situation. Um, and so like, there is a tremendous amount of ceiling there, I, I believe to, to get better and push that uh, limit of how good you could possibly do in this game. But at the same time, anybody can jump in and they're not going to do bad. Like they're still going to score, you know, on average two points per stone placed uh and and you know the scores aren't going to be that far apart and i think like the exact same thing is true in sushi go like you can't really have a horrible game in either of these games you're always going to be doing productive things you're always going to be accruing points um even if you don't understand it at all as i did Mm -hmm. in, in like my first play of the game emotep um but that doesn't mean there's not like huge skill ceiling and separation uh, between novice and expert play. Uh, I, do, yeah. I agree with that because I do think that your evaluation of like the average value of a turn is there. But with Emotep, I do think the design, because of the design of some of the locations, gives you just enough room that you could really mess up. Like if you somehow, uh, if another player had a ton of stones at the obelisk and you were in second and someone kept directing your stones there, then the, then those stones, just their points could end up being just depending on the side of that location, zero. Your burial chamber, chamber stones, you could keep like having them set there in a way that they just don't connect at all, right? Or with the, because the burial chamber, okay, the obelisk is all about getting lots, just a density of, of stones in that location. You just, it's like area control, getting the most in there. Burial, burial chamber is about creating these connected rows across columns, um ten, you could also at the temple just place them there when they're going on top of your stones these are all mistakes but because emotep is a game where like other people can force you into mistakes it could happen and i, I go sorry you respond respond okay I'll, I'll push back just a little bit because if somebody's consistently sending your stones to a place where they're unoptimal that means like they're the ones sending your boats which we've already discussed is like not efficient um so perhaps, I mean, that could happen in, in a two-player game. In a three-player game, like, again, like, you wouldn't be incentivized to, if you're already wasting efficiency by sending a boat, you wouldn't be incentivized to, like, keep targeting the same player. So I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, you could do really bad, but I actually think kind of the, the rails of this game is still going to be, like, guarding players against that because in, any more, in, a, in a two-player game, right, like, sure, that's always going to be the most cutthroat. But in any more than that, like, to do that is actually, like, the game is, like, guiding you away from that. Because if you're doing that to somebody else, that means this other player over here, they're going to be the one taking advantage of you continually, like, picking on the new player. I was being too pedantic. You're never yeah, yeah. going to blow someone out like you could blow someone out in Castles of Burgundy or something, right? There's not going to be 250 to, to 60 points or something or 50 points. Like, that type of span just isn't going to happen in Emotep. You're all going to be between, like mid 30s to like 50 something maybe slightly higher yeah i'm with you one thing i think this might be the best point to discuss is is like comebacks because of the nature of that tight banding and scoring comebacks can be really hard there's not a lot of spaces that give you that really huge comeback potential the obelisk we've talked about gives you potential for the biggest swings probably um because in like a two-player game the player with the most stones there gets 10 points and the player with the second most stones gets one. So that's potentially a really big swing that can happen. Some of the cards can give you a fairly big swing. If you draw really late in the game, one of the cards that gives you like three points 
or one point for every three stones in the burial chamber. And the burial chamber has just one of the uh, locations that's been hit every single round with large boats. That could be a big payoff. Um, but like in general, because the average value of the turn is so close, it's once you fall behind, it can feel frustrating and not have room to come back. I think that's a really fair criticism of the game, and I agree. Uh, it's you know this is a six round game, so yep. if you are slightly behind after round one, you know that's okay because you still have five rounds to catch up. But if that person extends their advantage and, and wins again slightly in round two, you know that's a bigger hurdle now with less time to do it. And by round three, you know if the same. Uh, dynamic is taking place which you know you maybe would expect if it's two players of different skill like you might as well call the game at that point because the chance of you know in three subsequent rounds uh suddenly like switching and, and beating your opponent by the same margin you lost by in the first round is pretty unlikely um so i do agree i think you know you can definitely feel out of this game by the midpoint in it and that's unfortunate uh, so I, I agree. I think that's fair criticism. I will say, uh, you know, as as a defense, I think that's true in this genre of games. Like when you think about uh, kind of these abstract static decision space games, like the same thing is absolutely true in chess. The same thing is absolutely true in Azul. Uh, typically, right, like I think it's like by nature of that decision space uh and, and kind of the simplicity of this game, like it's tough to also have one to where there's like a built-in catch-up mechanic that doesn't just feel, you know, really forced or just like layered on top of the game. And you can there you can come back. It's not like there's not some potential, but yeah. but you have to like work on it. You have to like work overtime and be like consistently outplaying your opponent. There is no real catch-up mechanism totally to speak not... of outside of like maybe if your opponent scores more points in round one, but they have like no rocks and you're ending round one with five rocks in your supply. I guess that's like could be. Now you'll be placing, they'll be forcing to like take at least one off-tempo turn. Yeah, totally. I, I will say we did have one game where you were beating me like 30 to 15. And we, I did get back. You still beat me. It ended up where I lost by two points, which did feel pretty good. It felt. Like, I was getting nervous in that. Yeah. One. <laughs> well, it's because of that obelisk spot, but ultimately, but it's, it came down I to realized one stone. I, but I realized, like, at a certain point in that game, like, I didn't have to compete on the obelisk. Like, yeah, yeah, you, you had yeah. to, and I could then just go to other spaces. Totally. Uh, and so, you know, I th- and that's kind of like where I was. Where I when when I hear the all the way back to your uh, committee remarks on this game from the Spear Spiel to Yarrow, I always think uh, tricky moves is like to me. It's like there's really mo- room for like clever plays that like your opponents may not feel. And like I felt like at the very end of that game, there was like a time when you know you played a rock on the first spot of the boat, and I'm thinking like, oh, you're gonna go try and like secure the obelisk and all. I so I'll put one on this other boat, and then I had the opportunity. Maybe you did go to the obelisk. I can't remember exactly, but I had the opportunity to put a second rock on the same boat. And I knew, like, the thing that went through my mind was like checkmate. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No matter where you know, like, no matter like if you 
place the rock somewhere else and you give me the opportunity to move this boat, I'll be able to like go get these points that you won't be able to, you know, counter if you move this like somewhere else to where I won't get as many points, which is what you did. And I think that was the right play that was like maximizing the possible benefit to then like you're giving me boat control, uh, basically the tempo advantage on the other remaining boat to where I'm still going to be able to, even though it's going to be close because I've given up the obelisk, like there's no way through this line that you'll be able to like overtake my score. And that's the brilliance of the system. I had already lost because you'd created this exploitable imbalance in how much we needed different locations. This is what we've been trying to get at, right? Like I'm building your birdhouse in that situation <laughs> because just because I had to, to have any chance, I had to focus on the obelisk, which meant if I need something to go to the obelisk, I have to be the one who spends the turn sending it there because the only four of the five locations are going to be used in a given turn. So if I'm just like, okay, I'm going to sit back and like, even if somehow I got all the boats to be helping me, which means I'm not sending boats to a location most likely. And I started the round and I've loaded them up and Jake is following me. Even then I have to be the one who sends it there and take that off-tempo turn. And that's already an exploitable weakness that like I had no chance because Jake could find the points elsewhere. And that's that's so cool. That's the hidden game underneath Imhotep that makes me feel like I should have just stuck with the, the eight that I'd like been considering and thinking about for the week. And it makes me want to go back to. Are you going to buy this game, Jake? I think I do want to because I just think it'll be like... I've talked about this a bit on the podcast. Most of the t- my time spent gaming at the table is playing with people who are only gaming at the table with me at my yeah. house. So like not really, there's people who like love games and enjoy playing games. I'm not trying to be like gatekeeper or that, but, but aren't like full on hobby gamers to where they're like researching games, playing games online, uh, listening to and creating podcasts. Uh, but are people that like enjoy games, uh, You're which the- I would call occasional gamers. And I think this game is going to absolutely sing, yeah, you know, at my table with these folks that I love playing with. Totally. Uh, for all the reasons I mentioned uh, on this podcast. I think anyone who fulfills that sort of role in their gaming community of like, collection curator where like they love playing games but they you're their you're their game outlet i think this would be a great addition and would hit with so many different tables it would also hit with families we talked about how it's a family game and it i will say as a dual game like if you have a super try hard friend who like has that reputation for being wanting to get really competitive in games this could be something that would serve you well too. It's not going to have those really exciting moments, but I think if you're both invested and care about the outcome, it's going to be a fun race. Yeah. If you like playing something like Azul two player and and that like, which also becomes at two player, like a super cutthroat and tactical game. I think this is very much in that same vein. The other thing interesting about this is two player game. I mentioned at the very beginning There is also Emotep Duel or Emotep the Duel, which is like specifically a two-player game built on the same theme. I have played both and I prefer Emotep the base game at two over Emotep the Duel at two. Both are available for free to play on Yukita. So I recommend checking that out. But I do think it's interesting to like create a dual variant of a game, which also, which already kind of rocks as a two-player game. Yeah, in my opinion. <laughs> it's definitely trying to squeeze some milk out of the stones, but I respect it. You got to do what you got to do. Also, publishers Cosmos, and they're known for two-player games. So mm-hmm. I could see if it's in their product. It's a good game. Well. It's, it's I, I enjoyed playing that one too. Um, 
it's it's fun uh feels but the i think the puzzle there is more it's like it's it reveals itself quicker like in, in the first play i'm like okay i get what's happening here um where in this i was like what is this? <laughs> sure. <laughs> totally. Can we really quickly touch on the card system? Because I feel like we'd be remiss not to talk about it slightly. Sure. Let's let's mention it. Okay. So there's these are like end there's a one of the locations you can go to is the market. The market allows you to take a draft of either three face-up cards or two face down cards, and you get to pick between them. The first player with the first stone in the boat that goes gets the first choice. There's green cards, which are end game scoring statues which are just like classic phil walker harding triangular scoring so you're getting increasing benefit the more you get um but not exponentially so you're just trying to set collect them basically there's blue which i've talked about already are like you're investing in a double turn because you're spending a turn taking one of these blue cards um which i think is pretty interesting and it takes a turn to play it you're doing that as it's sort of like a hidden fourth action in the game Um, and then there's red which are immediate effects so they basically give you flexibility right you've dedicated a stone going to this location but you could like slip one stone into the obelisk even if the obelisk already has a boat at it and i think these offer some needed and interesting variability Um, at first i was like what are these doing in the game like why are these here um, they felt out of place to me. And then the more I played, the more I appreciated how interesting they made the decision space because these are the dynamic, these are like the dynamic outlet at the, if it's a static turn structure, this is like the dynamic hose sticking out of the side of the building. Yeah. I really like the cards, um, and, and their design. I think, uh, you know, again, like the tricky play thing, yeah. like you can do things that are super clever yeah. with, the blue cards in particular. Um, and, you know, we keep going back to this, like this game is 100% all about tempo. So the fact that like the blue cards and the red cards too, to some extent, like allow you to just like break that rule in the game is so incredibly powerful in a way that feels hilarious. Cause like so much of the game is like, I need to place this, uh, this, this rock in, the in these two spots and which one is going to be more valuable to me and having that blue card in your hands like actually like i'll just play both or or like the simple like the one i think it's like is it hammer that lets you uh get three rocks and place one so you just skip your off turn like it doesn't sound like much but it feels so great like it, it just feels like like you're absolutely boosting ahead of people. And I, so I feel like these blue cards are really strong and something I've been kind of prioritizing getting in our games. And you do mention like you're spending a turn to get that to even out. But if you're not the one who sent the boat there, it, it's like it's not exactly like yep. a free turn, but it's like a 1.5 turn. It's the same amount of agency, but because they're grouped together, the marginal value, I feel like, of the actions is is 0.5 higher. Like, it yeah. really is significantly better. And it's also because you have the choice, right? You're going in and you have the flexibility. So if any of the flexible outcomes are good for you, you'll have more information, for one. Um, and two... I really feel like the the all of the blue cards, the double tempo, so there's also sail, add a stone to a boat, and then send it. All of these, in Emotep, the marginal value of two actions at once is more than, compared to one action and then one action, is more than nothing. Like, it matters that they're grouped together, and that's really cool. 
Yeah. The red ones too are cool because like just knowing that they're there can be really informative of your strategy. Like a lot of times it's like if there's like a red card that lets you put a rock in the burial chamber. These are the know, immediate effects when you yeah. take a red card. Yeah. And you know you want to put a rock in the burial chamber. Like just knowing that like, okay, like I don't have to worry about sailing this boat because if I go here or here. Yeah. You know, like just having that knowledge really changes the decision space in super interesting ways. So I just think, you know, the design, and the statues are cool too. adding like a little set collection thing going on uh, can really force people into interesting situations where they might just like need to take a statue away from you or else it gets like out of hand really quickly. Um, and then also, of course, like green endgame scoring in some ways is also breaking the tempo because it's like allowing you to get points for placed rocks that aren't your own so i just think like again these cards are so well designed in a way like that i can't think of any way i would change them maybe like an an expansion that like brings in some more cards could be cool but like i just feel like this base set is so perfectly balanced that and it could have gone off the rails here so easily (laughs) uh that just like it really shows it's like it just like it's like great chefs make simple food, you know, at times. And like, it shows their skill where you're like, oh my God, like I've never had, like, this is just an egg. And like, how is it like so amazing? And I feel like this game is a master designer, like showing you, like there's nothing behind the right, like the the curtain here. It's like, it's showing you everything uh, it's so simple and yet it's still like so perfect and fun that like I think that's like why I have like just feel like this game deserves such a high rating for me. Emotep is the perfectly poached egg. Yeah, maybe that. I should call it that instead of the <laughs> instead of the mashed potatoes. Um, also, dude, I'm so mad at you. I like came into this episode and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm a straight shooter. I'm excited about the game, but I don't think it's that incredible. And I'm like. <laughs> Am I going to buy the game? Uh, <laughs> it's definitely an eight, at least. Everyone I know would enjoy it. It might not have the pizzazz, but like who needs pizzazz when you have the perfectly poached egg? Right. There is an expansion. It gives you more locations and a bunch of cards. It, to me, feels like different, but not better. Is what it, I haven't played it, but that's the sense that I get. And I feel like I could just not get it or care. But right. maybe we'll try it on Yukata. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would I would try it out, but it, it does seem like yeah maybe we'll try it out and report back, uh, or or when we do our look back in one year's time, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll be deep into the expansion of this one. But yeah, it's fun. I'm gonna continue playing it. I mean, I think just like my closing thoughts on this game, I've I've obviously been raving about it. I feel like if our friend uh, Paul Solomon was here, uh, he would be you know echoing me if not even giving it like a 10 and, and he's the guy I really respect his opinion and and thoughts on games so I, I know i'm not alone in gushing about this game i think it's one when it first came out you know i saw i was like okay it's like an and one another one of those like popular family weight games like azul like sagrada uh i feel like there's like a one or two games every year that come out and are like a big hit for families that are just like a simple rule set. And, and when this one came out, I was like, well, you know what? I already have uh Zool. Like, you know, I, like, I feel like I have this game niche in my collection. Um, so it was one that was easy to look past. And I think if you're someone who did that, like try this one out, 
uh, there's way more to it than meets the eye. And I think like that even could be revealed by just listening to this episode or just listening to the rules overview or even like watching a play of it. Uh, I think this is kind of one you have to experience and it's so quick to play uh, that like, if you love games, like why not give it a shot? Uh, and finally, like the th- perhaps like the thing I like like most about this game, besides the fact that like I really have a hard time uh, thinking through, like thinking about like things to be really critical of it. Besides, perhaps for some people it'll be too calculable. Perhaps like the fact that like there is no comeback mechanism. Some people might just not really vibe with that type of clear static decision space. Uh, so that's fine. Like there, there are reasons to not like this game. And if that sounds like you, maybe not for you, but like even beyond that, what's been so fun about this game is it's just like cracked us up when we play it. Like we're talking like on, on our discord, we're constantly talking about like boat, boat control, control, like investing in big rock. Like <laughs> it, it's just like this game. That's like so funny to me. And like, really makes you feel uh, like, it makes you feel when you're playing it like that bastard just sent my three rocks over here. Like that's not what I wanted to happen. Uh, or like, I can't believe I'm like helping this person like do exactly what they want, but like I have no choice. And it, it's just like, you know, as, as we're talking, I hope some of that has come out where it's like a lot of times you just feel like, ah, oh, like, like when you get you and uh, Joe are so mad about like my position in our game and like, how can we stop him? And I'm just like sitting there just like, you know, wringing my hands together, like I've already drank your milkshake and you don't even know. <laughs> totally. It, it, there's a lot of drama in Emotep in a great way. It, In some ways you can imagine like a workplace drama, but it's Emotep and we're builders and we're like, you know, like underhandedly chopping each other down. But I, I don't think I could have said it any better than you. I feel like my only criticism of Emotep at the end of the episode might be that I feel like I've learned more from its design than I've had fun, but I've had a ton of fun with it too. Um, so in my book, that's a win. Cool. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Decision Space. It's been so much fun chatting with all of you in our Discord about your top 10 games uh, from our last episode. Uh, that's been awesome seeing what people think of our list and, and also just to talk through like the process of like people going through their pub meeple collection and like the games that have surprised them by winning the, a number of fights. I know a wonderful plays in our Discord was surprised by how many, how many uh, fights Jenga was winning and just stuff like that has been so fun. So uh, please don't hesitate to to jump into our conversation there. We have always share a link to our Discord community in the show notes. It's a great and welcoming place. Even if you're like not familiar with Discord or think it's going to be like too complicated or difficult to like get involved with, it's really not. I would highly encourage checking out because the discussions we have in there are great and it's a lot of fun. Um, so I just wanted to show that one more time. Brendan, anything... For you to promote show yeah i'll put on my carnival barker hat real quickly you can follow decision space on twitter at decision spa it's not our most active account but we would love to be interacting with more people there so if you are a twitter user and you'd like to chat with us about any of the games we've covered anything about decision space or just about chunky stones you can do that at decision spa on twitter you can also follow myself brendan hansen at burnside bh there or jake at jakefryd. You can contact us uh, via email if you'd like at 
decision spa at gmail.com. Uh, and also if you, we've been getting a few comments on our BGG blog where we post our links to episodes every week on there. It's just called decision space. Uh, I've really enjoyed those and appreciate those. If you want to chime in, even if you want to say something funny like boat control, it'll bring a smile to Jake and I's face and thumbs on those posts are always appreciated. It helps more people discover the show. Uh, yeah Yeah, and well as always thank you to hembry for their song reach out which we use as our intro and outro music uh thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your game Mm -hmm.